welcome. This is a message from Victory Church. We trust you'll be inspired and encouraged by today's message. Well, Tony has just mentioned that we are in the midst of a series called No Ordinary Family. And this morning he mentioned the fact that it is a bit of a paradox that we're calling it that because in a sense, the family that we're talking about, Ruth and Naomi and these guys, they're very ordinary people doing very ordinary things for the most part. But there are definitely some things about their family that are quite extraordinary. As we read through the book of Ruth, we're going to see some extraordinary events. We're going to see some extraordinary correct, uh, connections, some extraordinary kindness. We're going to see an extraordinary marriage that ultimately results in an extraordinary descendant. Some of those being King David... Old Testament king, and Jesus Christ himself. So this family is certainly no ordinary family. And Tone spoke this morning from verses 1 to 5, and his message was entitled, It's My Life, Isn't It? And I would just firmly endorse what he said. It was an awesome message. And so definitely, if you missed it this morning, do not. there's no excuse for not hearing that message. I strongly encourage you to do so. But tonight, excuse me, we're going to be looking at uh, verses 6 through to 18, and I've just sort of summarised this by using the subtitle, if you like, Leaving and Cleaving. And for those who weren't here, I'm just going to do a quick wrap-up as to where we, we got to this morning. Basically, Ruth begins with a Jewish couple, Naomi and Elimelech, who, because of the hard times, the famine in Israel, decide to move to Moab, about 100 k's away, uh, where they assume that things will be a little bit better for them. And so they take their two sons, Kilion and uh, Marlon, and they embark on this journey. The trouble is, it seems like within a very short time of them getting there, Elimelech dies. And so we've got this woman, Naomi, in a foreign land with her two sons. And so you can imagine it, it's, it's not a good start. But in her heart of hearts, I guess she thinks things will get better when her two boys meet two girls and... They meet Orpah and Ruth and they get married. And I guess for her, some of the, some of the sting of the fact that she's lost her husband is, is eased somewhat with the thought of, you know, surely soon we're going to have the pitter-patter of little feet around the place and I'll be able to pour my life into my grandkids. But tragically, it's not the sound of little feet in the home. Used to be. But it's actually the sound of wailing and weeping as her two boys, Marlon and Kilion, also die. So we end with a family at the end of verse 5 of three widows. Having been in Moab for 10 years, facing, I guess, an uncertain future, a frightening future. When you consider the place of widows in that time, they were really at the bottom of the pile. You know, the Bible talks a lot about God being a friend and a protector of widows and orphans because they are two of the most vulnerable groups of people in the society in that particular time. And so I'm going to start, I'm just going to read through from verse 6 through to 18 the story and I'm going to make a few comments on that afterwards. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles, Ruth chapter 1 verse 6, it will be up on the screen though. When she heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of of his people by providing food for them, Naomi and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where they had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. 
Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them and they wept aloud and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why should you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons that could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. Back in those days, um, you probably have seen this in, in the, um, when the Sadducees were talking to Jesus and they were saying um, uh, a man had a wife and he died and his brother married the wife and he died and you know who's, whose wife is she going to be in heaven? Basically in Old Testament law, okay, if a, brother, um, if a man died without having children, obviously his, his family line would end there. But there was a provision under Old Testament law that the brother could take the wife into his care and the first child that they had together would be the child of the dead brother. Okay, so Naomi's just referring to that here. She's basically saying, look, I'm, I'm an old lady now. You know, even if I got pregnant tonight, um, you know, there's going to be a period of time of waiting till those boys grow up to be able to fulfill that obligation. And are you really going to hang around? Okay, so that's the situation they're in. Um, so return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. And even if I thought there was still hope for me, Even if I had a husband tonight and gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is far more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone against me. At this they wept again. And then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. And so we see at the start of that in verse 6 that the news has come that the famine has finally broken in Israel. And so we have three ladies, three widows, three grieving widows, who are faced with a decision to go or to stay. Now for Naomi, it's a no-brainer. The desire to return had never left, I'm sure. In fact, I imagine that, that being the type of woman that I perceive her to be as I read through the book of Ruth, that she was probably just one of those dutiful wives who didn't even want to leave Israel but just followed her husband another one of his harebrained schemes, like so often happens. And so in her heart of hearts, I believe that you know, Israel was always home. She always wanted to go back there. Added to that fact was the fact that she was a stranger in a strange land. She had two very devoted and precious daughters-in-law, yes, but outside of that, she really was a stranger. And there wasn't too much to hold her there. Add to that fact the fact that she loved her girls so much that... In her heart, she'd already decided that she was going to leave them there. She realised that for them, it would be better if she was out of the picture. It was going to be hard enough for them to pick up where they'd left off and get remarried because remarriage would be a, you know, the, this place of security for them. But to be dragging along the mother-in-law from a previous marriage, I mean, there's not going to be two guys that are going to be too, too many guys that are keen to bring that situation home. And so as an act of love and kindness... She's thinking in her head, I'm going to leave and I'll I'll leave the girls here and they can make their life. 
And she's ready to go home. I mean, she's hurting. She needs healing. She needs the type of healing and the type of care that only the people of God can bring. Only family, the family of God can bring. And so we see in verse 7 that they begin to head off. And I don't know at that point whether they actually all made a decision to go. In fact, I don't think they had. I think probably their situation was so dire. I can imagine Naomi just gathering all of her things, everything she had left, probably into a little bundle, putting it on her shoulder. I would imagine the girls would have been able to do the same because probably having had a certain scenario where they'd come out of where they would have lost everything pretty much through the famine. They've come to a foreign land. What little they did have would no doubt have been sold off for food and for the rent where they were staying. And so I don't know they were all necessarily heading to Israel at this point, but they were certainly all walking towards Israel. The girls were accompanying Naomi at this particular point with everything they had with them. At some point, it may have been at the border, it may have been at an intersection in the road, it may have been at the city limits or whatever, but we see that Naomi turns to the girls and gently... Nicely, warmly, she encourages them. Thanks very much, girls. I really appreciate your, your, your comfort, your concern for my sons and, and for myself. But it's time for you guys to go back. And I trust that you will find a husband. I trust that God blesses you in that and you guys will have good lives. And obviously, it's, a, it's an emotional moment. And they're all just standing around crying and uh, just thinking, you know, not being able to really contemplate the thought of being apart because these girls have, have grown to love each other deeply but that love has then been cemented even further because of the grief that they've all shared. And so at this particular point, both of the girls respond as one, we will go back to you, to your, back with you to your people. And then I reckon after that we would have seen a bit of a change of tone in Naomi's voice and that's where she begins to, to tell them about the bleakness of the future, the fact that she's an old woman the fact that she's unlikely to get married, the fact that there's no, no future in terms of an inheritance or a heritage for the girls where they're going. You know, there was issues, as Tone alluded to this morning, between Moab and Israel. They were not friends, these two nations. And we'll look at a little bit more of the implications of that later on. But these girls would have been going into, a, I guess, a hostile environment to some degree. And so she paints this bleak picture for the two girls. And obviously the tears continued to flow, but for Orpah... She began to realise, hang on a minute, what Naomi is saying makes sense. Yes, I do love this woman, but my love for her is not going to pay the bills. My love for her is not going to secure the future. It's not going to put a roof over my head. And so having weighed up things rationally, and I guess just being thankful for the opportunity to be released of her obligation to Naomi and and to be able to, without shame and without guilt, be able to wander away, she, she makes that choice and she decides to do so. She heads home. And we never hear from her again in the Bible. And the first point I want to make tonight, the first thing that stands out to me here, is simply this, that emotional decisions usually don't last. Emotional decisions usually don't last. It was an emotional time as they were both, they were all on the road together. And, you know, with all the tears flowing, it's like, I'm going to go with you, I'll be be with you forever, etc., etc., But when the rubber hits the road, when she's confronted with the reality, the stark reality of a a hard life ahead, she chooses to go back to what she knows. Emotions are so changeable. You think about it. One minute, she's being driven by her love for Naomi, and the next minute, she's being dictated to by fear of the future. 
And so she makes two drastically decision, uh, different decisions within the space of minutes because she's being led by her emotions. Can you guys relate to that? Have you ever been moved in a moment to do something? Maybe it's been in a church service. Maybe I'm going to follow Jesus. Come hell or high water, I'm going to follow Jesus. You know, Peter, Lord, I'll go anywhere. Even if all these other pleb disciples desert you. I won't. I'm willing to die with you. Sorry, Peter. No, you're not. But, you know, we've all made those sort of decisions. I'm sure we've been emotionally moved and we've made big calls. Maybe we've been in a, in a, in a, in a situation like this. Maybe it's been a SIGWO meeting. We've had someone talking about children in India or Africa. And we think, I'm going to sponsor a child. Or I'm going to give my money here or do this thing or that thing. Maybe we've been moved to, I'm going to trust, test God and trust God with my tithes and my offerings. And I'm going to step up my giving. And they're decisions that can just be emotional decisions based on being moved, based on eloquence, based on um, uh, coercion, based on you know, just good, good communication or whatever. And there's nothing wrong with that if we follow it through. But the trouble is, what happens when we say, I'm going to follow Jesus, and then are all excited about that in the church context with all the other people who are excited about that, and then we go to work the next morning... And maybe our workmates aren't quite so ex- as excited about the fact we've decided to follow Jesus. What do we do? If we've made an emotional decision, we will just go back to what we had before. It's just too hard to maintain that decision. So we'll just go back. What about when your kids start soccer and ballet and the lessons cost that $20 a week that you were going to give to the little child in Africa or India? In the emotion of the moment... But then the financial reality kicks in. Same thing with the tithes and offer. I'm going to do this. But then when the bills come in, what emotion grips you then? Moved to be generous, but then maybe gripped by fear of what will happen if I give this to God rather than pay my bills or whatever. You should pay your bills and give to God. Not either or. I'm going to make some changes at home. I'm going to be more loving. Out of the spur of the moment, you've heard a, you've been to a marriage seminar or you've heard a message on love and I'm going to do that. How do, we, how do we go when what we expect will happen when we're all loving? We, 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 I'm going to be loving. And it gets thrown back in our face and our feelings of love are suddenly re- replaced by feelings of anger. What happens? We cannot afford to be led by our emotions because a decision made by a compelling emotion is so easily replaced by another compelling emotion. There are a whole bunch of compelling emotions that you and I are going to experience on a daily basis. And if we're not careful, we'll flop this way and we'll flop that way just depending on how we're feeling at any given moment. And really, sadly, that's exactly what Orpah did. Moved by the moment, moved by the, the, the thought of leaving Naomi, but confronted with the reality, she didn't have a conviction. And so she flopped back to what she knew, headed back. Naomi said she's going back to her people and to her gods. At the end of the day, her gods weren't gods. They were just demon spirits. One of the chief gods in that land was Chemosh, and it was a god who required human sacrifice. 
That's what she was going back to. It's tragic when you consider what Ruth ultimately went into. So I suggest just a couple of things, just practically. In terms of if you're a person that tends to be led by your emotions, and I hope you know if you are. You probably will by now. You've probably been hurt enough times to have worked it out. But uh, if you are a person who is led by your emotions, don't make rust decisions. Be a person that puts a buffer in between the emotion and the decision. Because like I said, you know, Tone's said this plenty of times, and you know, we have before about you know, when you're buying stuff, don't, don't be compelled by the salesperson to do something there and then. Because they're always going to sway you and always going to tell you it's the best deal. It's never going to be this price again. You've got to do it now, etc., etc., etc. And you get caught up in the emotion of that. You're probably going to make a decision that you're going to regret in the morning. Whereas if you go away and think about it, put a bit of time between that emotion and your decision, you can look at your budget, you can have a look at what you've got and whether you really need it, etc., etc., and you can end up making a good decision that you're not going to regret in the morning. Because you know the, good, the thing about a good decision It's a good decision the day after as well. If it really is a good decision, it'll be a good decision on the day or the day after or even the day after that. So don't worry about a good decision. A good decision hasn't got a use-by date. Relational decisions, purchasing decisions, directional decisions, all of these things. You know, relational. Getting married or getting unmarried, divorced, don't make those things when emotions are running high. Because again, if you're led by your decisions in marriage, you'll be married one day, not the next, and married again, not the next. You know, you've got to make some, a decision and just work, work with it and, and get away from the heat of the emotions and make some decisions based on, you know, if, if you're looking towards marriage. And that's why I encourage guys that to, you know, that have been really blessed by some of the approaches people have taken as they're heading towards marriage and they're, they're weighing up the person they're married. They're weighing up how they work together as a couple and, you know, are some of these things negotiable or are they non-negotiable? And you know, to consider those things before you get married is really good. One person says, I want five kids. One person says, I'm never having kids. You've got to talk about that stuff. You've got to weigh that up. So they're saying, well, I love her because that will be a major issue when you get married. Where to live, where to work. Tony mentioned some of these things this morning. Where to go to church. All of these things are best made in the cold light of day. Not just... You know, we went looking at houses the other day and, you know, I, I, it's a beautiful house and, you know, I think we can afford it if my wife gets an extra job and uh, we sell a few kids, uh, it'll be okay. <laughs> and there's a block of land, just happens to be on the other side of Melbourne, but that's okay. Um, I don't think there's any churches there, but I think we could probably work, we could start one. Um, you know, just all that sort of stuff, it's nonsense, Really? Are we, are we people who are living by conviction? Are we people who are making a decision based on the will of God? Or are we just people who are flopping around depending on how we feel at any given moment? You can do it, but it's not going to be helpful ultimately. Like I said, I, I really would hate to think what happened to Orpah. I mean, she, you know, she might have lived, gone on and married, lived a happy life. But ultimately, each one of these decisions that these ladies made on this particular day were decisions that echo on into eternity. Oprah may have well have had a happy life, been a respected woman in the town that she lived, and then spent the rest of eternity regretting not turning to the one true God, but following some demon spirit into hell. That's just the reality. The second thing that happens in verse 15 and 16, we see that as, as um, Naomi is urging Ruth to follow her, and I don't know whether she's just maybe testing or not, whether she really wants her to go, but you know, I think there's something in that. You know, Jesus didn't make it easy for people to follow him either. 
you know, he said to the disciples after, after saying some deliberately provocative and offensive things, you know, he turns to his disciples, are you guys going as well? And I think maybe this is one of those moments, you know, make it too easy for people. Um, I don't know. But anyway, Ruth will not be put off. And to me, there's a question that's got to be asked there. Why? Why is it not easy for Ruth just to go back to what she knew? Go back to her mother's house. Go back to where her family and her friends have all lived and got businesses and homes and all that. Why would she not do that? Why would she follow some woman who's, by all accounts, cursed? I mean, this woman comes from a foreign land, following some foreign god. Her three men in her life die. I mean, that is a sign that this is not a woman who, you know, is, is in good luck land. You know, I mean, this is like bad luck Schlepprock has come to town. For any of the, was a bit of a flashback there to something. I used to watch some TV, can't remember what it was. But you know what I'm saying? This, this, you know, why would you follow someone like that? I mean, that could be dangerous hanging around. Like they could get hit by lightning or anything. Seriously. But something had happened between these women. Something had happened that that Ruth had seen that was attractive, magnetic for her. And so my second point is this. Genuine Christians are influential. And technically she wasn't a Christian, I know, but I think you know what I'm saying about Genuine people that are following the genuine God are influential. If anyone had a reason to give up on God, if anyone had a reason to be crushed by their circumstances, surely it was this woman Naomi. And yet... We see some amazing things in her life despite her circumstances. The fact she maintained a big view of God. You see, the way that she speaks about her life, it's, she's very God aware. God hasn't been diminished. She doesn't get it. She doesn't like it. But somehow she understands that God's bigger purposes are afoot. She's in a foreign land, but she hasn't been swayed into following a foreign God because she knows that her God is present in a foreign land. She has a big view of God, knowing that he is always in control, even in bad times. She remained faithful to her God, even though she felt he was against her. Her life remained salty. You know, Jesus talked about living lives that are full of salt and light. And she spoke, the word you see in your, in your Bible there, where it says, Lord, in capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Whenever you see that in the Bible, that is the word Yahweh is translated into English. It's that, that Lord is Yahweh. So she's talking of the God. She hasn't, she hasn't been diminished. She doesn't talk about God's little G. She doesn't talk about her faith. She doesn't, she's not compromised. But she's talking to her sister, to her, to her daughters-in-law, about the one true God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the maker of heaven and earth. And this is her stand. This is her conviction. Uh, right throughout these last 10 years that she's been in Moab, and something has rubbed off. In the life of Ruth, she has seen something that is genuine, something that is, something that is attractive, something that is amazing in this woman who should be just rolling over and dying, and yet somehow in the midst of it, she's managed to, to be faithful to her God and even exude a sweetness, even though later on she, she says, you know, call me bitter because of what's gone on, but there's a sweetness in her life that's attractive. She doesn't hide behind vague religious cliches or succumb to the pressure to get involved in all the pagan sacrifices that were going on and get involved in all the other stuff. Her nature and her faith shone way beyond and way through the darkness of her circumstances. You know, for you and I, as believers, if we are believers in this place tonight, 
our influence is to a large degree, or the, the sphere of our influence, the scope of our influence, is in God's hands. The gifting that God puts in our life is his business. Some people, just by sheer weight of personality and that, that is a gift from God, are going to influence hundreds or thousands at a time just because of the gift on their life. Perhaps because of the, the, the place in which they've been put if you're, in a, if you're in a school environment as a teacher, you have, a, you have perhaps a, a larger sphere of influence than, than if you're maybe a mum at home. Okay, it's, you know, that stuff, there's an element of God in that. There's an element of, of, of providence in that. The number of connections that we have, again, there's a part of a God, you know, you, you're born in, in uh, you know, some little town at the back of Burke somewhere and you've got 10 people in your community versus being born in Adelaide. And there's, there's a God element to that. But being faithful, that's totally in our hands. Being God's faithful ambassadors in any given situation, that's totally in our hands. And so whether we've got an audience or a sphere of influence that consists of thousands or whether it's hundreds or whether it's tens or whether it's one, we can make a difference. And I love that. I love that that's obviously happened in this scenario. I mentioned last week as as Tone and Baz and myself got up here and just shared about some of our experiences growing up. You know, the thing I mentioned, I just want to reiterate, is the fact that, that Dad had an influence on us. Dad didn't make us go to church. He didn't try and make little Christian little robots out of us, but he, he lived in a manner that said to every one of us as we were growing up, God is real for Dad. And at the, we, when we got to that age where you begin to start thinking about the bigger questions of life, every one of us followed Dad to church because we wanted to know more and every one of us then through that came into a personal relationship with Jesus for ourselves. It was just influence. And if, if, if Baz, Tony and myself were the only three people Dad ever influenced in his life, I think it's enough because ultimately the echo of the influence goes on into this room and beyond for every one of us. It's part of his inheritance. And every one of us should never be intimidated by the size of the audience that we have you know, if we're a single mum at home with one child, be consistent, be faithful, live a life of integrity and influence the child because you never know what's going to happen down the track. Just in terms of some things that we can do, give credit where it's due. Give God credit where it's due. Give Jesus credit where it's due. You know, some people want to just think you're the, a good guy and all that sort of stuff. That, that's, that's cool. But maybe you could have the conversation with them. You should have seen me before I met Jesus. Giving credit where it's due. Using the name Jesus in our conversations. Don't be too vague. It's easy to talk about faith. That weird sort of ethereal thing that doesn't have an object. It's just faith. Just have faith. It's easy to talk about God or spirituality and all that sort of stuff. But I don't think that's what Naomi was doing. She was making her home aware in no uncertain terms about Yahweh, the God of Israel. And we need to be letting our family and our community and anyone in our sphere of influence know that, that Jesus is the difference in our life. He is the way, the truth and the life. And to do that in a way that is natural, to do it in a way that is real, to do that in a way that's hopefully not too preachy, just consistent with who we are. Be consistent. Again, don't say Jesus is Lord and prioritise everything else. It's a massive turn-off 
to people who are looking at you with a, you know, there might be a little glimmer of hope just beginning to be, be birthed in their life as they, they hear that you're a Christian. They think, I've heard stuff about Christians. I've heard stuff about Jesus. I'm going to watch this person to see what they do. Something begins to flicker in the inside. And, you know, the way that we live, does it fan into flame what's going on in the side of their life or does it come along and just like pour a bucket of cold water on it? Because the biggest problem that people have with the church is hypocrisy. So let's be consistent. If we say Jesus is Lord, our lives should truly re- reflect that. Are we paying a price for our faith? Is there, is there a measure of sacrifice? Because there will be. If you are a genuine Christian, there's going to be, you're going to be paying a price one way or another in your faith. And people should see that. They should see that. And this is costing them something, but they're still joyful. They're still committed. They're still whatever. Ruth's final say on the matter, having observed that, For 10 years, she says this, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. That is an amazing level of commitment. Sally Ann actually said that to me at our wedding. And she's she's lived that out. You know, she's left her family, left her church. She's come and done... Our thing, in a sense, my people have become her people. That's awesome because she, made, she did it on a commitment, not on a whim. So, but that's an, that's an amazing level of commitment for a pagan woman to make to a Jewish woman if there's nothing behind it. And so the fact that she does says to me that all those other things I've just said are happening. We're happening in that relationship for a long time. Her decision, I don't think her decision was made on the road. Orpah's decision was made on the road, on a whim. But I think her decision was made sometime in the 10 years prior. It might have been as she had to weigh it up, having heard the good news, what do I do? Or it could have been within a year of knowing her, where this woman goes, I'm going. Her people are my people. And interestingly, where it says, um, you know, where you go, I will go, it's it's all future tense in the English, but in the Hebrew it's a bit more abrupt when it gets to God and people. It just says, your people, my people. Your God, my God. It's like, already, my God, my people. In other words, Ruth had already made the transition in her heart from being a pagan Moabite woman to being a God-fearing Israelite. It wasn't on a whim. It was based on weighing up She'd heard the stories. She'd probably even checked out the stories. I mean, Moab, Israel, there's a bit of history in that area of the world. It's like the story of Rahab. Rahab, Jericho, Israelites coming to attack. People knew what had gone on. People knew what happened when they left, Israel, uh, left Egypt. They had heard the stories. And so her heart was prepared based on what, just the, the, the history of the area. And so when Ruth is uh, sorry, when Naomi is speaking to Ruth and she's talking about, you know, the God of the Exodus and talking about the judges and all that, these were things that were news. These were things that she knew about. These are the things that could be confirmed by just asking questions. And and so she was utterly convinced. She had been transformed. She had been saved. It wasn't a whim. And the third thing I want to have a look at this, uh, this evening is just this: that connection requires separation. To embrace the new, you've got to let go of the old. Simple as that. Ruth let go 
and left behind her family, her friends, her reputation, the possibility of, of marriage in that, into that um, society, etc., that possibly she could have been leaving behind kids. We don't know. It was a massive faith step for her to leave. She did not, there was no guarantees. She's following a widow back to a strange land where there's a strange God on the natural. She couldn't live with a foot in each camp. She had a sense of destiny. She had to make a choice. It's not like I'll live in Moab and I'll go and visit Naomi every year. It's like, no, it's, it's one or the other. I've got to make a choice. And that's something that many of us are often unwilling to do. We choose to see how things go. We allow ourselves to be pulled here and pulled there by other people's wishes, demands or expectations of our lives. And the reality is that many of us let up, uh, end up spread so thin that we become no good to anyone. No good to ourselves, no good to our husbands or our wives or our kids or our, even our boss and certainly no good to God. Sometimes you've just got to make a call and separate from the old fully in order that you can embrace the future fully. If you want to have a good marriage, you've got to leave the past behind. And, you know, that obviously includes old girlfriends, old boyfriends and stuff. But even the whole leaving, cleaving thing, it's about, you know, when a man and a woman come together, a man will leave his, his mother and father, the two will become one flesh. It's a separation from those old ties, those old influences. You want to ruin a marriage, guys or girls? Just invite your mother-in-law into every decision that you want to make. Or your father-in-law. Just, just put your wife or your husband's opinion second to your parents. You don't separate, you're going to have issues. You're not, you're not going to build a, a strong and healthy relationship together. If you don't deal with those, if you don't have your priorities right and your lo- loyalties placed firmly in the marriage, it's going to be a shaky foundation. There's going to be problems. The relationship will founder. Likewise, for us tonight, if we are going to follow Jesus, if we're going to truly embrace him, there are things that we need to let go of. There are things that we need to cut off. We can't have a foot in each camp. I think Rick said it last week. You stand with one, one foot on each side of a barbed wire fence, you're going to get hurt. When we find... Oh, that's a good metaphor. It's pretty, plain, plain, pretty easy to understand. <laughs> but if we're going to follow Jesus, if we're truly going to follow Jesus, there are things that have to be left behind. We cannot do all the things that we used to do. You know, pretty much at every stage of my life, there are things that had to be left behind. When I got married, there were things that were left behind. You know, when I started working, there were things that were left behind. When you have kids, there are things that get left behind. You've only got so many hours in the day. You've only got so much energy. You've only got so much finance. It's like to embrace another thing, the best thing to do is to let something go. You can't just keep grabbing everything and just pulling it in. Because like I said, you're going to run out of time, you're going to run out of energy, you're going to run out of money, and you're going to drive yourself to an early grave. It makes sense to let go of one thing to embrace another. It's very difficult to become a Christian. 
and to hear the message coming in week in, week out about you know, giving your all to God and God is good and he deserves our best and all that sort of stuff, but to try and hang on to all the hobbies and all the sports and all the activities and all the cultural events and all the friendships we used to have and all the stuff we used to do when we were 15 and be married and have you know, children and all that sort of We cannot do it. So if you want to stay married and you want to have children and you want to serve God, and those things are pretty important priorities in life, I think, God being the most important, but the others are very important as well, maybe some of the sporting stuff's got to go. Maybe some of the, the cultural stuff's maybe got to go. Maybe some of the hobbies have got to go. Maybe some of the, just some of the TV time's got to go. Maybe a whole bunch of stuff has got to go in order to really do this thing well. Jesus said it this way, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. Luke 4, that's Matthew chapter 16, verse 24. In Luke 14, 36, it says, If anyone comes after me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So it's not talking a literal hatred here, because Jesus says, love your, um, love your neighbor as yourself. So we expect to love ourselves. But our love towards God should be, by comparison, our love towards others should be hatred in a sense. You know what I'm saying? God first, everything else in its right place. Ruth did that. Her mother and her father, serving pagan gods, were left behind. Her brothers, her sisters, her family, her friends, she let go for the sake of following the one true God. Jesus said in the same way, anyone who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. Ruth had passed that test at that moment. It sounds tough. And certainly there are challenges to be a Christian. It's not an easy road. But as we continue this No Ordinary Family series, we're going to see that, yes, there might be some tough calls we made along the way, but the benefits of serving the one true God far outweigh any of the costs that we could ever accrue. So in conclusion, I just want to make a few points. We've looked at a family of widows who hearing the good news of God's provision back in Israel decided to make a choice. Naomi chose to return home to the healing community that she'd been away from for far too long. Orpah made an emotional decision to go to the promised land, but then made an emotional decision to head back to where she'd come from. Ruth, having learned about the one true God from Naomi, decided he was worth risking everything for and set off to fully embrace her new life. Which one are you tonight, if any of those people? Maybe you're a Christian who, like Naomi, needs to come home. You know, we are created to live in community. We are created to be a part of the people of God. I love the term, the healing community of God, because it is, it, it is so rich to me. When I see the blessing there is in this company of people, when I understand the privilege I have as a pastor is just mixing with a large number of you. Many of you have got a smaller group of friends in the church, I know, because you can't be friends perhaps with everyone here, but... To see so many lives being impacted in so many wonderful and different ways through the body of Christ. We were never intended to live outside of that influence. 
And yet many Christians rip themselves off by living at a distance to the church. They ask themselves the question, can I be a Christian and not go to church? And they come up with some clever answer that says, yes, I can. And on a technicality, you're probably right to some degree. But you will never live the fulfilled life that God has called you to do if you're not connected to the people of God. So I want to challenge you tonight. And again, it's probably not a matter of saying, you know, put your hand up and make a commitment to the church. It's really just a matter of next week being here, week after being here, get involved in a connect group, come to the prayer meeting. Just doing that stuff is, is a sign that you're connected. It's not about a decision. Maybe you're a person tonight who's battling with the cost of following Jesus. Maybe you've been a bit freaked out by the thought of what that means. That's, that's not bad. Just continue to wrestle. Let Orpah's life be a warning. If we don't go forward, we'll go back. And she went back into emptiness. She went back into a, a basically a, a culture that was, that was controlled and manipulated by demons to the point where people were literally sacrificing other human beings to try and appease this, this so-called God. Now that may not be in some ways our reality today, but I think we do live in a society that's pretty bloodthirsty and there's a whole lot of, being, of, of other people's lives being sacrificed for the sake of our pleasure. And that's our future if we don't follow the one true God. Ruth is an example of a person who moved beyond mere affection or, and emotion. And she made a decision. She had a conviction and ultimately it became a commitment to follow. And I want to encourage you guys to be making a commitment to follow. It doesn't matter if it takes you six months to make that commitment. It doesn't matter if it takes you one year to make that. I I believe that God is big enough that if any person in this room is really going to get hit by a bus tomorrow morning, because I've been in meetings where they say, you could get hit by a bus, make a decision now, and people get scared and they make a decision. And then they get up in the morning and they realize they were sort of pressured into doing something they didn't really want to do and so they don't go back to church the next week. No, it's not about that. I think God's big enough that if anyone that was really going to happen, that God would probably let some of us know and, and there'd be a bit of, you know, you'd probably have some friends around that would gather around and, and give you the, most of us have got a week, a month, a six month, and I want to encourage us to be asking wise questions, to be weighing up the lives of those around about us so that when we make a decision, you know, I love it when people come to church and they say, I'm going to put my hand up tonight. It's not cheesy. It's not, it's not contrived. It's like, no, they've made a decision. They've weighed things up, and so they've come prepared to put their hand up. doesn't matter whether the music's fast or slow. doesn't matter whether the preach is awesome or not so. It just, it's like, I'm going to become a Christian tonight. I'm going to make a decision because I've weighed up. I've been coming to this church for six months. I've seen the lives of people. I've, seen, I've, seen, I've heard the stuff. I cannot argue with the sheer truth of what's being shared. I'm going to become a Christian. I would much rather see that and then see that person, maybe do it ugly for a little while, maybe wrestle with a few things along the way, but make a decision and be committed. Then see people come through that door, get emotional, put up a hand, and then we never see them again. Make an emotional decision. You can make another one tomorrow in the opposite direction. It's not about that. So I just want to encourage every one of us here tonight. 
And in fact, I, wanna, I, will, I will put out the call for anyone who's... Because maybe there are people here who have been weighing this up and are ready to make a decision. Can we just bow our heads? This is the end of the message. Thank you for taking the time to listen. And God bless.